When you were young, what do people say about your potential? Were you pegged for success? Or perhaps people suggested you needed to apply yourself, or even that you wouldn't amount to much, which is a pretty awful thing to say to a kid, but it does happen. I want to know how you feel about your potential now. Now that you've been through some of life's ups and downs, how do you feel about that? I, the ideas you had when you were growing up about what was inside you waiting to get out and how to get it out. Lost potential is tragic, like a, a life cut short or a great athlete suffering an injury, for example. But so is potential that's never nurtured, that never gets a chance to discover itself. Adam Grant wants to lift up that bushel so your light can shine. He's an organisational psychologist at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. He's got a few bestsellers under his belt, including Think Again, Originals and Give and Take. And he's been exploring the idea of potential in his latest book, Hidden Potential, The Science of Achieving Greater Things. Adam, welcome to Life Matters. Thank you. It's great to be in Melbourne. I'm glad that we're turning a scientific lens on this because I, I guess, like you say in the book, we all have ideas about potential. I'd love to hear your example of uh, great successes from unlikely places. When was the first time you were able to find potential you didn't realise you had? I think for me, the first time was as a springboard diver. Uh, I had no business in this sport I walked like Frankenstein. I could hardly touch my toes without bending my knees. I didn't have the grace or explosive power that diving requires. But I had an extraordinary coach who said, I will never cut a diver who wants to be here. And three years later, I find myself at the Junior Olympic Nationals and achieved far more than I thought I was capable of. That's interesting, isn't it? Because some coaches would say, maybe it's best for you if I cut you. You might want to be here all you want, but you are terrible at it. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the the research on this has actually changed my thinking about that quite a bit. So there was an amazing study done years back looking at uh, people who go on to become great athletes and also elite musicians and artists and scientists. And it turns out that they rarely stood out as having superior ability when they were kids. Um, when they were distinguished in childhood, it was typically for unusual motivation, not for unusual talent. And so I think it's easy to bet on the people who start ahead, but it's actually those who want it most that end up growing the most. So how much potential is going untapped society-wide in your estimation? Is that something that's actually possible to measure? I wish. Can we <laughs> say too much? Too much potential goes sure, untapped. Lots, I, let's just assume. I don't know how to quantify that, but I can tell you, you know, even just in this past week since Hidden Potential came out, the number of people who have said, you know, I, I, I really underestimated myself earlier on um, and under other people underestimated me too. That's been the dominant reaction. So I think there's probably a, a great deal of untapped potential in all of us. And why is that a problem? Well, I think it's a problem because it leads us to limit ourselves and probably close the door on people around us. Um, I think that you know it puts a ceiling on on how much we grow. It leads us to to only stick to our strengths and try the things that we're naturally good at, uh, not realizing how much distance we're capable of traveling. And is there an equity issue too that I guess if we look at our population more broadly, some people's potential has less chance of uh, cracking its way out of our little carapace than others? Yeah, it's often said that talent is evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. And we can see this in the data starkly. Um, economists have shown that if you're from a, a wealthy family, um, you're about 10 times as likely to get a patent 
as you are, even if you have the same level of ability, if you come from a poor family. And that, I mean, that's just unacceptable. That has to change. And we're long overdue to try to figure out how do we create better systems of opportunity to give everyone a chance to reach their potential. We're speaking with Adam Grant. His new book is called Hidden Potential. And it's fascinating because you can really read, Adam, how your thoughts changed, as you said, as a scientist, uh, when you started reading up on the literature of how we achieve and why we achieve and don't achieve. Just quickly, how much do the expectations other people have of us influence our own sense of what we can achieve? What does the research say about that? Expectations matter a lot, but not always in the way we think. So I think the the obvious finding, which has been replicated for decades now, is that expectations are self-fulfilling prophecies. So if people see a great deal of potential in you, you're more likely to rise to meet those expectations. If people think you're not going to make it, then you're supposed to be crushed and discouraged by those doubts. But my colleague Samir, uh, Samir Nur Muhammad has actually turned that understanding upside down. He's shown that when other people doubt you, that can actually become a source of motivational fuel. Uh, that if you know that they're not credible because they don't know the task or they don't know you, you say to yourself, well, what, what does this naysayer know? Like, I'm going to prove them wrong. And that can fire you up to work harder, smarter, and longer, and ultimately violate the expectations that should have held you back. And I think that's great news for anyone who's felt like an underdog or overlooked. Well, yes, it makes me think about imposter syndrome, which I'm very familiar with over the course of my life. But I know so many people who have achieved amazing things and, and yet still feel like an imposter. Does that mean they've they've done that? They've used those low expectations to fuel their path forward in some way? I think that's that's one possible explanation. Another is I've come to see imposter syndrome also as a sign of hidden potential. Because when you feel like an imposter, you feel like there's a gap between your own self-assessment uh, of your ability and other people's beliefs in you, right? So they they think you're more qualified or more capable than than you assume you are. And I think this is such a fascinating paradox because on the one hand, you're saying, I don't know what I'm doing. And yet on the other hand, you're saying, but I definitely know that I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and I, I think the lesson for me is that if multiple people believe in you, it's probably time to believe them. Wow. Okay. I choose to believe that that is true based on your uh, extremely Im impressive scientific credentials. How do you feel now about the things that were said about your potential as a younger person or your own assumptions about it, which as we've heard can be pretty powerful, uh, other people's expectations of us, but our own expectations of us as well. Jenny says, my parents wanted me to be a secretary. They left school at 13, but I wanted to go to uni. I ended up having to go to TAFE at night to learn to type. I'm 57. And she says the expectations were very different back then. I was fascinated to read the Steve Martin example in your book, Adam Grant, because I just assumed he'd always been a very successful comedian, but not so. Me too, Hillary. I, I just assumed he was cut from a different cloth than the rest of us. But it turns out that Steve Martin was a terrible comedian when he started out. Uh, I had a chance to interview him for my Rethinking podcast a few months ago, and I asked him about the early days. And he said it was an unmitigated disaster that the only time he really got laughs was when he was telling other people's jokes. And at some point he had this awful realization that he was going to have to write his own material. And the problem was that Steve Martin hated writing. He thought he was you know, a natural improviser. His comfort zone was very much to make things up on stage when he had a live audience. 
And he realized that he had to go out of his comfort zone and learn how to write. And over time, it took him a couple of years, but he started writing for TV. And eventually he honed this ability to write killer one-liners that he became world famous for. And I think the lesson from Steve Martin's story is that too many of us stick to our comfort zones when it comes to our learning style. I think everybody was told at some point in school that they were an auditory learner or a visual learner or a verbal learner. But the research on this says, actually, your learning style is not about how you learn best. It's just a preference for how you like to learn. And sometimes you actually learn more when you go out of style because you end up having to push yourself harder and um, ultimately challenge yourself more. So I think there's a little a little Steve Martin in all of us. Yeah, that was a really fascinating story because it made me think about that idea people put forward that, oh, you know, you just have to keep practicing. You do your 10,000 hours of practice or whatever it is now, and then you get better. But Steve Martin worked out after a few years, didn't he, that it didn't matter how much he practiced the style of stand-up he was doing. It was not going to get better. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think you know, the, the amount of effort that you put in is ultimately less important than how much you learn through each rep. And I think that really should refocus our attention on the quality of practice as opposed to obsessing just about the quantity. Amazing text messages reflecting the diversity of people's experience when it comes to what they were told about themselves and what they actually ended up doing or achieving later in life. Joe says, Adam is so right. My husband was laughed at when he wanted to be a design draftsman. He topped maths at RMIT Uni and became amazing at his job. Growing up, says Kelly, I was told I was smart and could do anything I wanted. So the only way to rebel was to do nothing. It took until I was 50 to realise the pointlessness of this stubborn approach and realize that I really wanted to study science, which I am now doing. Is that a, is potential a bit of a double-edged sword sometimes, Adam, if people say, you're so great at that, you can do anything, you're going to be amazing. What effect can that have on a child? I think it can be. So when psychologists study this, they find that the danger is that the, the should self overtakes the want self. And you end up conforming to other people's expectations about who you're supposed to become or rejecting those expectations uh, and deciding you know, to rebel. Um, and, and both of those paths are less desirable than, than forming your own aspirations, which is really different from ambition. Um, I think when philosophers talk about the distinction, ambition is about what you want to achieve. Aspiration is about who you want to become. And I don't think anyone should let others dictate that path for them. This is a great one too. I was dubbed procrastinator of the year, says Shirley, by my teachers, but it wasn't until I was 42 that I found out I was autistic and had ADHD. Finding out how my brain worked and working with my brain opened up my world, also realising that I was striving to reach other people's definitions of success and working out what success meant to me has changed my life. Adam, there's that idea that, you know, there's a genius in everyone waiting to get out. Do you subscribe to that or, or do you need think we need to think differently about what achievement looks like for different people? Can I say both? Yeah, sure. Go for it. <laughs> yes, I'm going with both and here. I, I do believe there's a, there's a genius in everyone because I think everybody, I mean, you can think about this as, you know, as a, a radio host, um, every single person you meet knows something that you don't. And I think a huge part of being a lifelong learner is realizing that you can grow through interaction with, with every single person that you encounter. And if that's true, if everyone has wisdom you don't possess, that means everybody has a, a type of capability um, that probably is underappreciated by the people around them. Um, I think at the same time, though, we ought to be redefining what it means to be a genius. Um, historically, if you go back a few hundred years, 
uh, it was common for people to to think about genius not as something that you possess that's innate um, within you, but rather as as something that that gets visited upon you. Uh, you. They would say people would say you have a genius, um, and it's it's a bit like um, a poet or an artist saying you know the the muse showed up today. And I think if if we locate genius a little bit more in our circumstances, it becomes uh, a little bit more in reach for all of us. We're speaking with Adam Grant about the idea of potential and what his research has found. He's an organisational psychologist and his book's called Hidden Potential, The Science of Achieving Greater Things. Adam, let's get to the the nuts and bolts of this. What are the necessary conditions for success? We've tossed around some words like motivation and talent and opportunity. What's your sense of the ideal combination? Well, we, we know that talent starts, it basically defines where you start. Um, but motivation and opportunity are, are bigger drivers in the long run of how far you're going to go. And I think that when, you know, when I think about what really drives that motivation and opportunity, um, I've, I've been surprised that a big chunk of, of what we want to invest in are not the cognitive skills of learning, but the character skills. So if you look at, for example, the most important skills that kids learn in kindergarten uh, that prepares them for adult success, it's actually not math and reading that matters most. It's learning to be pro-social, proactive, disciplined, and determined. And those kindergarten skills actually drive how much you succeed in learning over time at whatever career you choose and whatever hobby you decide you want to master. So I think a big part of of achieving hidden potential is actually investing in those character skills. And then obviously character skills do not exist in a vacuum. I think everybody realizes, hey, I, I need a coach or a mentor or a teacher who can help me get to the next level. And I think the encouraging news here is that you do not need permanent support to climb. What you need is scaffolding, just like we would we would put on a building. Uh, a temporary structure that helps a construction crew scale to a new height. Um, You don't need the same mentor for 20 years. What you need is somebody who can fill a gap in your knowledge, give you a little bit of a lift to the next step, and then remove the support because now you're capable of doing the task or overcoming the challenge on your own. And I think the combination of character skills plus scaffolding turns out to be extremely powerful. Perhaps the example of the kindergarten teachers is useful here, Adam, and and how much impact they can have on people's income later in life. This is stunning. Um, So economists led by Raj Chetty, who's a bit of a wonderkind, uh, have shown that you can actually predict people's income in their 20s by knowing the number of years of experience their kindergarten teacher had. I was blown away by that. Yeah, um, and that—that's where I assumed that those more experienced kindergarten teachers were were giving kids an edge in math and reading, and they were in the short run. But then in the next few years, their classmates tended to catch up. Where they got the lasting advantage was in those character skills, the discipline, the determination, the inclination to be proactive and pro-social. And you know, even in fourth and eighth grade, if you had a more experienced kindergarten teacher. Your, um, your subsequent teachers were rating you better on those character skills. And those character skills were about two and a half times more important for predicting your, your income later on than your cognitive skills in math and reading were. I also want to hear, Adam, about the chess kids, because I love this story. And it makes me think about how we think about motivation, what, what fires people up with the will to achieve. Tell us their story and what it, what it illustrates about that. Well, this is, I think, one of the most eye-opening stories I've ever come across. Uh, So you have a group of poor racial minorities in Harlem 
who uh, who decide that they want to play chess uh, as you know, mostly 12-year-olds. Uh, they don't have any experience. They don't have any formal training. A lot of their competitors uh, have been groomed since they were six and seven years old uh, by the chess equivalent of an Olympic training center uh, to be these, you know, these brainiac prodigies. Um, and these these kids in Harlem, uh, their team is called the Raging Rooks, are at a huge disadvantage. But they have a secret weapon, which is they have this young chess master named Maurice Ashley. He comes from Jamaica. Uh, he's well acquainted with the fact that there are many stereotypes uh, casting doubt on the abilities of, of, of dark-skinned children. Um, he, he was one himself, and he decides that he's going to change things for them. And he leads them to the finals of the national championships. Um, and I think there are a lot of lessons from the way that Maurice set up that scaffolding and built their character skills. But one of my favorite things he did was he actually taught chess backward. Instead of teaching the initial opening moves, he would just put a couple pieces on the board and say, I'm going to teach you the end game. I'm going to teach you how to checkmate your opponent. And what would happen is the kids would get fired up because all of a sudden they learned how to win. And as they had the skill to, to checkmate an opponent, their will actually grew. And now they wanted to learn, well, how do I start the game? How do I set myself up for a, a checkmate? And I think we often teach backward. I think when you start at the beginning, it's hard to get motivated. Um, chess can be pretty boring if you're a newcomer. Ooh, yeah. You start at the end and you gain a sense of confidence. Speaking of starting at the end, there's a, a rather heartbreaking text that's popped in, Adam. It just says, when is it too late? Is it ever too late? Oh, that is a heartbreaking text. I hope it's never too late. I think the research on late bloomers is is pretty encouraging on this front. Uh, so it does turn out that cognitive skills decline over time around midlife, mid-career. Um, you know, we're we're not as we're not quite as fast at processing as we used to be. Um, sometimes like, complicated math gets a little bit harder. But there are other skills that actually spike at that stage and continue growing. Emotional intelligence seems to continue increasing, uh, moving into to older age. We see that self-control and willpower and discipline improve over time. Um, interpersonal skills improve. And also just the consolidation of wisdom um, happens over time. So I don't think it's ever too late to unlock your hidden potential, but I think where that potential lies is probably going to evolve over time. And as you've uh, shown so powerfully in your book, it matters if we get to those kids early and show them some ways to learn and ways to unlock that potential. Just finally, Adam, we tell kids to dream big and follow their dreams, but then there's a school of thought that says, let's be realistic. Let's not uh, waste time on, on unachievable passions. Spare the kids some disappointment, set realistic goals. Where do you sit on that? Oh, well, I, I think where I land on this is telling kids to dream big is less effective if you look at the data than ask, asking kids to identify their biggest role models and then set goals and aspirations based on what those people have achieved. Um, it turns out that when you tell kids they can do anything uh, or they should dream as big as possible, um, they actually end up aiming lower than if they look at specific examples of people they admire and try to shoot there. Um, but also they they end up really struggling to figure out, well, where do I want to focus? I could do anything. I I don't know what to do with that. And so I think it's it's much more useful to begin with the concrete exercise of who do you look up to? Um, whose contribution to the world really matters to you? Whose skill 
do you think is extraordinary? And then let's figure out of all the role models you come up with, which of those directions might be feasible for you. Yeah, I could do anything is very much, oh my God, there's a blank page in front of me. (laughs) What do I do now? Horrific. Adam, it's been fascinating chatting with you. Thank you so much for your time on Life Matters today. Honoured to be here. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Adam Grant is a renowned organisational psychologist at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. His latest book is Hidden Potential, The Science of Achieving Greater Things. I want to read you a text or two here from the the many that have popped in. Potential, my dad grew up on a farm near Cowra. Kids from the Arambi Mission went to the same primary school. All the Aboriginal kids were put into the remedial class and told they would never amount to much every day. Despite those odds, says our texter, Human rights lawyer Paul Coe was at that primary school, but how much wasted potential? And those structures are Adam Grant's uh, key point of interest in his book, Hidden Potential, The Science of Achieving Greater Things. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.